imagine if you could overhear private, unfiltered conversations between the world's most influential and inspirational women? Now you can. Welcome to Leadership Global, where you'll hear from inspiring leaders who will help you define your vision, grow your leadership, expand your influence, and increase your impact to leave a lasting legacy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Lead Hership Global Podcast. And today I am so excited to introduce to everyone Heidi Floyd. She is a sought after influencer with more than 10 years experience in healthcare and specifically the breast cancer nonprofit management. I got to tell you, today is going to be an inspirational conversation about finding hope after life changing challenges. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced some sort of devastating defeat or perhaps a persistent toxic situation that you just can't change, or maybe it's a terrifying event that you couldn't control or the diagnosis of a chronic or terminal illness. If you've experienced any of those things, then you may have also experienced the feeling that hope is quite elusive. In fact, you may feel like hope is lost. And I got to tell you, when you don't have hope, you also don't have much energy or motivation. I mean, what's the use in reaching out to people? You're just sure to get rejected. Why bother exercising or cleaning your home or volunteering? It won't make any difference. I got to tell you, when you lose hope, you lose the sense that there is any kind of impact that you can make in your life. You'll always be lonely. You'll always be depressed. You'll always be anxious, unemployed. We're stuck in the same situation that's making you miserable. You don't want to risk the pain of further disappointment by even trying. But there are many ways to regain hope. And you may have your own way of finding hope. To me, finding hope is about exploring a complete paradigm shift from grief and despair to hope and leadership after life-changing challenges. Even during the most difficult challenges, there are opportunities for thanks. Today, Heidi Floyd will walk us through her journey from cancer caregiver to cancer patient to cancer advocate and activist. The trajectory of this journey has been an enlightening path of rediscovery, reinvention, and revelation. And while her main focus as a cancer advocate is in the speaking realm, Her passion for helping a wider world has caused the focus to expand into research grant review boards, first with American Cancer Society, and now with the Department of Defense, and also being the voice of the patient for organizations like Susan G. Komen. But before we dive in, let me tell you a little bit about Heidi Floyd. She is a sought-after influencer with more than 10 years of experience in healthcare and breast cancer nonprofit management. Her diverse skill set includes social media marketing, corporate philanthropy, relationship management, partnership cultivation, and program development. Heidi is a powerful communicator, public speaker, and a published author. She's a passionate advocate who is effective in discussing literally all aspects of oncology. 
As a thought leader in all things breast cancer, she highlights treatment options, quality of life, and even community concerns. Heidi has served as the voice of the patient for a myriad of organizations, including Ford, Google, the U.S. Department of Defense, the American Cancer Society, and Susan G. Komen. Her experience has helped to establish and strengthen relationships with the patient advocacy organizations that support patients, their families, and they also help educate corporations on compassionate outreach to the cancer community. So welcome, Heidi. Thank you so much. It's, it's just a privilege to be here and an honor. Um, I, I love the, the platform that is Leadership Global. Um, it, it, you don't just talk about it. You invite women to participate and find their way to become leaders um, or enhance how they already are leaders. It's beautiful, and I'm honored to be here. Thank you very much. Oh, Heidi, thank you. It's a pleasure having you. I got to tell you that I, you know, I have the privilege of knowing your story but I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about your journey and what led you to have such passion around becoming an advocate, the voice of the patient for the cancer community. Sure, um, I, I'd be happy to. Um, I think my, my cancer journey has been around as long as I can remember simply because um, my, my mom was diagnosed when I was quite young, I was in college. Um, and, and when she was diagnosed and she called and let me know, now, now, now we had known about cancer in my family forever because she talked about her, her grandmother having it and then my grandma had it. And so like generationally, cancer has been in our family and we are, um, we are a family of immigrants. And so when that happens, um, it's not like... It's not like it is now in that you don't have your medical records that come with you. So it's really just word of mouth. It's like a family legacy handed down, not just in your genetic makeup, but in, in, in written, in spoken word. You know, you tell your story about what happened and how you lost your grandma, things like that. But it was whispered in hushed tones. I have cancer. She had cancer. Like, you know what I mean? Like there was some sort of shame in this. None of the women in my family did anything to cause breast cancer other than the fact that they were born women. That's it. That's the main cause, um, which is absurd to think that there would be some sort of shame affiliated with it. But it is um, it, to the point that even farther back, it was known as women's. They, they died of a women's disease. What on earth could that pass? Every disease, with the exception perhaps of testicular cancer, is a woman's disease. So it, there's no shame. So that's that's kind of the environment I grew up with. When I was in college, my mom called and told me that she uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer and it was um, traumatic. And she also, you know, I have breast cancer. And I remember thinking, why, why are we ashamed of this? Why are you whispering to me? You're on a closed, you're in a bedroom with the door closed. I'm in a, a room with the door closed. We could just speak about this. Um, and it profoundly impacted me um, to the point that, you know, fast forward years later, I have three beautiful little daughters and I am actually pregnant um, when I myself find a love. I, I, I was changing my daughter's um, crib sheet and snagged what I thought was a, a button on my shirt, but it turns out I was wearing a shirt that had no buttons. So there was actually a very hard nodule on my breast, um, which caused me to go to my OBGYN. Now, you know, having had children, I had had two miscarriages and three, three children. I know my body changes during pregnancy as do all bodies, but this was different. There was something different about this that was disconcerting. You know, it was just, does not just a change in the breast tissue that I was experienced with, um, with my other children. So my OBGYN suggested that I get a, um, a needle biopsy, which is exactly what it sounds like. A needle is inserted into the tissue, um, 
item is, things are removed, extracted so that they can examine it. And it turns out that that was fine. My needle biopsy came back fine. Um, but when I heard that news, my husband is the one that told me and he was hugging me and he's like, it's all right. You know, the, the test came back fine. Now I remember thinking in the back of my head, but it doesn't feel right. There's something not right. So, um, gosh, it wasn't even a week later that I went to my OBGYN for the checkup for the baby. And she said, I don't want to alarm you, but this, this thing, I know we just did a neobiopsy, but it's only been a week and this is bigger. It feels bigger to me. Um, which immediately, like, you know, I freeze. And she says, we're going we're gonna to go in and do a lumpectomy now because it's, it's disconcerting. This shouldn't be happening. This is not a normal, you know, feeling lump on a breast. So we're going we're gonna to check it out. So I, I roll into the, to the lumpectomy and it's interesting surgery because typically if it's, if it's invasive, they will, you know, you'll be fully anesthetized. I was pregnant. They could not do so. So they just did a local anesthetic. And during that surgery, I kid you not, since I'm awake, I hear everything. The surgeon does the incision and says immediately, oh my God, that was his response when he opened to see what was going on. And I said, well, what's going on? Is it like alien, you know, the hand coming out? What are you seeing? And the nurse, um, God bless nurses. She had the presence of mind to calm down and say, here's what we're looking at. We can see the the nodule that had been um, used for the needle biopsy. And it does look like nothing. But underneath of that, what we couldn't see on anything is that you have something called nested tumors. You have a group of tumors nested together and they have fingers. So it's not just clumped together. It's, it's really reaching far. Um, at one point in the surgery, they had not given me, they had under anticipated the size of the tumor. They did not give me enough general anesthesia to cover or local anesthesia to cover. So at one point in the surgery, I scream out loud because I'm in pain and it, cause it felt like it was on fire. And that's what I told the nurse. I feel like I'm burning. And she said, well, you know, we're actually cauterizing you. So you are. And, and she said, we were afraid of that. So they completely um, numb more of me to remove to remove what they hoped was all of it, but they couldn't, it was just too large. They couldn't get all of it. As I'm being wheeled out of that surgery, one of my little tiny children came over and said, mommy, mommy, we heard a lady screaming in there. And I said, oh, we should pray for whoever that was. Cause you never want the kids to know, you know, everything that's happening. So like that kind of dictated the whole rest of it. I realized at that moment, they need to know, everyone in the family needs to know what's going on but maybe not the, the granular. You know what I mean? Just step it up and keep it high level because they're little kids. I mean, my eldest was seven at that time. I had two, two little preschoolers. So I just had to bring it down to their level and not be completely panicked all the time because I was a mom. I wasn't just a, a young woman going, you know, I was in my 30s. So I wasn't just a young woman going through this. I was a mama and a wife and a pregnant woman. So, you know, it was, it was very complex. Um, now, the first oncologist that I went to see, you know, we were living in Chicago at the time. First oncologist I went to see um, told me without question, she, their practice had never seen a pregnant woman. They had seen many women with breast cancer. That's what they did. But they had never seen anyone who was pregnant. And I was advised that the only solution was to terminate my pregnancy. And I thought, well, how, how is that a, that's not a solution for me. That's not a, that's not the path I want to go. Um, and they said, well, if you, you know, your cancer is very aggressive, you know, you have stage three B cancer and it's estrogen driven, which means, you know, that's what's causing the cancer to grow. And when you have uh, a baby inside of you, when you're pregnant, your estrogen goes crazy. So what's feeding one is feeding the other. And they said, if you want to take the chance um, and have your baby and then start chemo, if you're still alive, we'll treat you. And I thought, well, you're probably not the best actor for me. 
Um, so I actually had um, friends who knew of a gentleman, a, a brilliant oncologist in, in Indianapolis, and they suggested that I connect with him. And I had no idea that he had cleared his schedule for me. I did not know when he found out what was going on. He said, yeah, this is, this is a rush. Let's get her in. So I call him and he's very nonchalant. And he says, you know, why don't you, let's, let's say I called on a Tuesday. He's like, why don't you come in tomorrow on Wednesday? And I'm like, and I actually said to him, well, what kind of a quack has availability like this? Like, I thought you were this important doctor. <laughs> I didn't know he had cleared his whole schedule. God bless him. So he forgave me and let me come. Um, and when I got there, it was, you know, he had a, he had a group of very young students. It was a, it was um a learning center. It was a hospital that was also partnered with uh, a university. And so they have always very young people in. And I'm like, I'm completely naked. I don't need all these kids with clipboards in here. But nonetheless, in they came. And the doctor looked at the information. He looked at the, the slide of the tumor that I brought. And he had a conversation with all the little interns. And then he said to me, here's what we're going to do. We're going to save your little baby. And when we're at it, we're going to save you too. And it was God like, bless George Sledge. Oh, George Sledge. I will say that until the very last breath I have. That man is a walking miracle. He really and he is. Doesn't, and it was like a, a wave is the only way I can describe it. From the top of my head all the way through my body, it was like, oh, okay. And he didn't, he never once said, oh, this will be easy. This will be a piece of cake. He actually said, it's going to be very difficult. You know, you we we're going to give you chemotherapy. We know what will and will not cross the placental barrier, um, which is they're pretty strong chemos, but we're going to give them to you very slowly. Um, and then, you know, but you can't have the things that will keep your white blood cell count up. You can't have anything that'll help you with nausea because that will hurt the baby, but we know what will keep the baby safe and attack the cancer. So, um, so we did, we, we plowed through, um, he, we did wait until I was out of my first trimester before we began getting chemotherapy. And then it was a regular weekly routine. I would go on Friday and get chemo. And then on Monday, we'd be back at the OBGYN scanning the baby and make sure that, you know, the heart was beating, the lungs were developing, things like that. And it was, it was a challenging time. Um, it was difficult physically, obviously. I think that kind of goes without saying, but it wasn't without hope. Right, right from that moment, I, and, and believe me, I was swimming in the water of no hope before I met George Sledge. Because I thought, you know, these are the, the brilliant minds of Chicago telling me that I can't have a baby and go through chemo at the same time. But then when I met him, it's just that little grain, that little spark that he gave me. That's all I needed to start, you know, fighting. And I hate the, the, the war metaphors that people use for cancer patients, but that's what I felt like, okay, all right, if I'm going to go into this battle, I've got somebody leading me that knows what he's doing and I can trust him. Um, and, the, and there was, you know, all the physical things that come along with chemotherapy, you know, I lost all of my hair. And by that, I mean, all of it, you know, in, in movies there, you know, they get somebody who's stunning like Halle Berry and they put a scarf on her head and I'm like okay first of all no one can look like that in real life anyway and and it's just a scarf but then she has like her eyebrows and her eyelashes that doesn't happen it all goes away um and then uh, you know so I'm completely bald completely bald and huge because I'm pregnant so you know I look in the mirror and like oh this I look like I'm seeing my brother this is what I look like bald you know it's, it's crazy um and so but there were but there were little moments, little highlights too, where people wanted to help and wanted to participate and and do what they could to pitch in. 
Um, one time when I realized that it was really, I was really struggling emotionally and a friend of mine called, he's like, how you doing? I'm like, I'm so, I'm so ugly and I'm so tired and I can't do it. He's like, oh, it's just because you don't have any eyelashes. You need to like go, we need to like make you up. And this was, um, this was before cell phones, right? So speakerphone was a big, a big thing. So he's like, go to the store, buy yourself some eyelashes and come back and I'll walk you through. Cause he was in musical theater. He knew how to do all this. So he's like, I'll walk you through how to do it. So I go to the store. Um, and this is just a little tip for me to you. If you go to the store to buy your first pair of false eyelashes and it's say the beginning of November, that big bin at the front of the store, that's the Halloween clearance. Don't just assume that's what you should be buying. Cause that's what I did. I'm like, Oh, look, eyelashes. Okay. So I get back and he's like, okay, so you put the glue on and I've got the speakerphone on and I'm in the bathroom and he's like, put the glue on, put those on your eyes. Now you stand up girl and look in the mirror and tell me what you see. And they were like this, cause they're the Halloween ones, you know, they're giant. <laughs> and I said, I look like I'm a pregnant drag queen. And he's like, oh, that's fantastic. I'm like, no, it's not, it's not the look I want. <laughs> so, but I were- love that story. <laughs> I gotta tell you, but you know, when you're on the journey to regain a sense of hope in your life, as you were at that point, right? Being yeah. able to see how the steps you're taking will lead to that desired change I got to think it's really critical, even if that means just buying false eyelashes and putting them on. If you don't logically see how what you're doing can have a positive result, then it seems like carrying out that plan is likely to be quite difficult. So what were some of the initial steps that you took to find hope? Well, after after meeting with George, it came it, it kind of became focused completely on the baby and my family. Like, what do I need to do? You know, it's not that I considered myself to be a disposable shell, but it all came about like the baby, like this is what I have to do and no one's going to tell me otherwise. So that was my, that was my complete focus. Um, and every little thing, you know, that, you know, every, every time you're a mom and you're, and you're pregnant, you, you kind of judge every milestone, but like every little kick, everything was like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> he or she is still in there. Take that. You know what I mean? And it was literally hearing the heartbeat every Monday was enough. But for some people that, you know, that wouldn't have been enough. You know what I mean? But uh, when you're, when you're reduced, when you're, when everything is stripped down and you're at the absolute lowest, you look for the granular, you look for the smallest thing, literally a heartbeat. That's all I needed. Now it's much more now, you know what I mean? We, I, I stack my hope based on the level that I'm at. So at that point it was just, I want this baby to live period. I don't care if I do or not. Like afterwards, I want this. And so when, when we're going in to have the baby, we've had, you know, a full pregnancy of chemo. I'm wheeling in to have my C-section um, and, and I'm quietly praying. <laughs> I think it's quietly, but my doctor hears me and she says to my, my husband, um, what, is, what is your wife doing? And he said, well, Right now she's talking about kindergarten. So basically she's renegotiating with God about what, like it was first, I just want him to be born. Now it's kindergarten. But the second I like kissed him and I took him away, I'm like, okay, God, grad school. I need more than kindergarten. But isn't that, isn't that how our life, like your hope, if you start at the bottom, it's all very simple. But as it gets bigger, as your dreams get bigger, as you realize the, the platform for hope is bigger, so will your hope. The umbrella will just keep spreading out. And you're going to want more. You're going to be greedy for the hope everywhere you can find it. Yeah, that's um, really tremendous insight. And you know, there are many, many people who have overcome tremendous adversity. And your story has got to be one of the most heart-rending, gut-wrenching 
stories that I've ever heard. And I had the privilege of hearing this story initially several years ago. But, you know, there are other people that are right now in the midst of incredible adversity. And so sometimes reading the stories and surrounding yourself with supportive messages and supportive people can actually help you build hope. So who did you look to during your journey that gave you a sense of strength, perseverance, and hope? I know you said that you just focused on giving birth to a healthy baby and that kept you going. But along the way, where did you find support? And who were some of the people you surrounded yourself with to receive those kinds of supportive messages and to read supportive and inspiring stories? Well, I'm a, that's a great, wonderful question. I'm a, a huge fan of history, um, not immediate history, but really far back. <laughs> um, so for me, I just dove into more books about history. And interestingly, my oncologist, uh, George Sledge, was also a history fan. So he would, every time I saw him, he'd give me another book, <laughs> which was fantastic. Um, for me, there were a couple of really big ones. First of all, I'm a, I'm a person of faith. My, my, my faith is very personal to me and very deep. And surrounding myself with people um, that would just pray over me was wonderful. Um, now, the history aspect of it, however, is very interesting, and I still look back at it, and I think, why, why on earth? Well, for example, Corey Ten Boom is a woman who, um, she was a, she's a Dutch author who, her entire family was taken and put into a concentration camp because they were aiding and um, helping um, Jewish citizens. She was not Jewish, but she was still put in a concentration camp, and her story is, like, even as I say her name now, um, it's very emotional to me because she was astonishing. She went through quite literally hell on earth with her sister. She watched a man kill her sister in front of her. Years later, she saw that man and forgave him. To me, that is that is overcoming adversity to a level that I can't fathom. I, I can't fathom. Um, and so I read her book over and over again. She She's incredibly powerful. Um, her story, The story of just her life. Um, and how she found hope. And, and if I can find hope in a in a wonderful cancer center with a brilliant oncologist in the United States of America, and you know, I have a bed to sleep in, and like that's easy in my mind to find hope in that situation, even though it's scary is one thing. To find hope when you're in the middle of Auschwitz, mm, that's a very different story. Um, there's another person as well. So that she's she's my favorite like woman hero in history. There's a gentleman um, named Thaddeus Kashusko. And he was one of the founders. He was one of the sons of liberty that fought to free America. And then he went back to Poland and tried to do the same thing for his country. And he had hope, even when it was very clear he shouldn't have. He did Sisyphean things, I think, just to try to help give people freedom and hope. And, 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 and I could read his, or his biography over and over again. Just astonishing. So there, those are two people from history that really moved and inspired me because they on, on paper, should have never had hope, not a bit. And yet they just exuded it constantly. <laughs> yeah, the, the brilliant stories and great examples of people that have faced absolutely unimaginable adversity in life and moved through it with a sense of hope and triumph, right? Yeah, so sure. what are, Heidi, in your mind, having been through something that some of us can't even fathom, what are the top three things that you would recommend for women listening right now that feel as though hope may be lost 
or at least elusive. What can they do to help overcome that feeling and shift from grief and despair to hope and mm-hmm. leadership? Mm-hmm. This It's the smallest things. Like there were days that I, I could not get off of the bathroom floor because I was so sick. But and literally, that was a day, an entire day. So the next morning when I woke up, if I was able to get out of bed, that's it. That's the one thing. It's Sometimes it's just as small as that. And sometimes it's as, as small as realizing, you know, I was able to get out of bed. And then I, I, I was asked some, recently by someone to explain how I find hope. And he was a young man. And I said, please walk me through your day. And he lived in Manhattan. He said, well, you know, it's plain all day. I got up and I made coffee, whatever. And I said, no, no, start from the beginning. You got out of bed. He's like, yes. I said, I assume it was a clean bed, um, you know, new contemporary. You, you had a blanket. He's like, well, sure. I said, did you take a shower? Yeah. You didn't have to get the water. It was right there in front of you in a sparkling clean bathroom in Manhattan. He's like, yeah. I said, and you went to your own kitchen. Yeah. Had coffee in the fridge, probably creamer. He's like, yeah. I said, right now, what you described right now is is a better life than 80% of the people on the planet. What you just described, the safety and, and liberty and food and water that you enjoy is something that most people will never see. So just by the act of going into the kitchen, you've already, uh, you've already seen more and have more to be hopeful for than so many other people. So it's, it's little things like that. And, and also, you know, so the, the first thing is just start small. And the second thing is slow down. You know, we're so busy rushing, rushing everywhere and trying, you know, I've got this list and, and the reason that some people feel dejected, I think, or that there's no hope is because they're just in such a rush. Um, right outside of you now, there, there could be a flower that wasn't blooming yesterday. Stop for a minute and look at it. It's a miracle. Flowers are beautiful. <laughs> like every petal is something that is a revelation. Go look at it for a second. Um, you know, the little puppy that's walking next door. Look at him. Just appreciate the very small things. And then, and then the third thing I think is congratulating yourself. Stop and say, all right, I did that. I did that task. I, you know, yesterday I didn't do anything, but today I did 10 sit-ups. Okay. You know, if you even if you don't do them tomorrow, you did them today. Start start that way. I love that. And it's doable. Your three points are feasible, doable. You know, it's about notice the small things, slow down, and, you know, ultimately having an attitude of gratitude, having an attitude where you are consciously looking all throughout your day for things to be grateful for. Yes. Noticing and appreciating even the smallest things to be grateful for. Yes. Deliberate. Yes. I love that. (laughs) I want to also, you know, talk about the fact that you provide such incredible leadership um, in the cancer space. You're an advocate, you're a thought leader, you're a speaker. And as a leader, I'm sure that other people have um, provided to you really meaningful advice and guidance. And you've probably taken some of that with you throughout your journey. And George Sledge, who we have in common, is certainly a phenomenal leader. So as you think about that, what is some of the best leadership advice that you've ever received, Heidi, that you take with you now? Uh, that's, a, that's also a great question. Um, there are two pieces of advice that I, that I really love. One was given to me uh, once by a, a woman named Pat Miller. And she said, don't, don't rely on your notes go up and tell your story. If it comes from the heart, it's going to be a thousand times more impactful 
than statistics you have on a note card. Go up and speak your voice. That was first. That's been resounding. And I've kind of lived by that. And a second piece of advice came very recently. I have a, an amazing mentor, um, a woman uh, named Molly Chang, and she is a, she's a, a wonderful leader. I, I, I'm going to introduce her to you after this. She, I had called, called her and asked her some advice because as I have become a speaker, I have realized that there are a lot of people out there who do not have a voice at the table, who do not have the ability to ha have a microphone in front of them. And I have been trying for years to gently educate people who ask me to be a speaker that they should also be including uh, women of color, um, for example. And, and, and I said, this, this is a big struggle for me. I remember one time quite vividly, someone said, we want you to come speak. At, um, we want to do a video recording of you for a triple negative breast cancer program. And I said, that's lovely. But two things, I don't have triple negative breast cancer. Second, you shouldn't get anyone beige to be your speaker because triple negative breast cancer affects impacts women of color statistically at a much higher rate than than women who are caucasian and they you know the they die sooner it's terrible That's like right. you need to speak to uh women of latin origin or women uh, african-american women period do not find someone that looks like me i'd love to accept i'm not going to and they, they kind of said, well, you know, graciously, they said, well, thank you very much. And then they filmed someone who looked just like me. And it was so disheartening. And so I called Molly and I said, I'm not using the right words. I don't know what to say. And her, her whole um, platform is to find the right words to say things. And she said, and I'll never forget this. She said, Heidi, here's the thing. You're doing what the, you know, what the memes are telling you, send the elevator back down. She said, that's not enough. That's not even close to enough. You need to get in the elevator, push the button, go down, get them, bring them in, and then walk them into the room. And I said, well, that's great, but I don't know what that means. And she said, the very next time someone calls and offers you to speak at, you know, at, a, at a convention, say, I'd love to, and I know that you're giving me a half an hour. May I request 15 minutes? And then here's my friend who's brilliant, uh, um, an even better speaker than I am, and she's African-American, and she's brilliant, has triple negative breast cancer, can I invite her as well so that you have a little diversity? And I started doing that probably two years ago. And I tell you, there has not been one event that has said no, not one. They're all like, oh, that's lovely. We've been looking for someone. Please do. But it's just the me taking the impetus to say yes, but instead of no. So I'm not saying no anymore. Like the leadership requires you to say I'd love to, I'd love to help you because you need help as well. But also I'm not the only voice you need to hear from. As a matter of fact, I'm not even close to the voice you need to hear from. I'm the least important. Let me tell you about the most important. Um, and that's really helped. That's really been a life changer for me as far as speaking is concerned. I, I owe Molly a great deal. <laughs> I love that idea that it's not enough to simply say you should find someone else but it's about, as you said, sending that elevator back down, but you're pressing the button, you're opening up the door, you're <laughs> grabbing somebody, you're pulling them in and you're going up, shoving them out and <laughs> presenting them and saying, this is the solution, yeah. right? And I yeah. love that. I, I agree with the concept of sending the elevator back down when you've reached a particular pinnacle, but this idea of doing more than that and finding the people around you 
that you can literally lock arms with and bring up with you is just such a powerful idea. And I absolutely love that, Heidi. As always, (laughs) you are, I mean, insightful, inspirational, impactful. I love every moment that I've had to watch you on your journey, to learn from you, to be inspired by you, and to be just simply someone in your orbit. It has been a joy. It's been an incredible revelation over time. And I, I got to say, you're one of the women that I hold in the highest regard because you're authentic, you're genuine, you're real, and you have gone through what most women would consider to be their worst nightmare. And look at you, you're triumphant, you're joy-filled, you're faith-filled. And it's just, it's honestly such a privilege to know you. Oh, thank you so much. I feel exactly the same for you. And what a, what a pleasure it is. I, I can't wait to hear how we can continue to help people going, going further. Me too. So thank you so much, Heidi Floyd. And for everyone, stick with us for next week. I can't wait to introduce you to our next guest and thank all of you for being on this week's episode of Lead Hership Global. Thank you. Thank you for joining Leadership Global, a podcast for and about unstoppable women stepping into courage, claiming their power, and embracing bold leadership. Join us each week as we talk to a collection of inspirational women changing the world and tackling the most pressing issues we're facing today as women and as leaders. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.